Richard Gottlieb. Hey, Chris, here we are. It's the last day of the show, and, and we're going to have an interview now with two just really interesting men, uh, Danny Simon and Jeff Gomez. And I've known Jeff for a lot of years. Uh, Jeff uh, actually uh, created the term transmedia storytelling. If you look that up, you'll find his name next to it. And I'm going to let him explain what that is. Uh, Danny is a licensing veteran with the toy industry, and uh, uh, we're going to have a lot of good conversation with these guys. But first, you are listening to the Playground Podcast, and we are at the 117th New York Toy Fair. And we're Jeff, I'm going to toss it over to you. Tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Well, my name is Jeff Gomez. I'm the CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment. We're a production company based right here in New York City. And we specialize in uh, developing story worlds, uh, creating worlds and characters and creatures that can uh, extend across multiple media platforms. I came by this by uh, uh, being a fan. Uh, As a kid, I wanted to immerse myself in those worlds and escape the harsh realities uh, uh, and... um, (laughs) And then I would get disappointed when there were these discontinuities because the license tended not to care about the story. And so the, the characters would behave in different ways on different media. So as I got older and able to influence content, I wanted those characters to behave the same way across different media. But you, uh, if I recall correctly, you uh, were one of the first people uh, early on in writing video games that you had to write all the many, many different options that they could take. And this took a tremendous amount of, uh, of concentration, and it really called on your ability to carry a lot of different themes in your head at the same time. Uh, uh, thank you. It, it, it did, uh, because not only did the world have to be big enough to accommodate all these different iterations, but I also needed to understand the way that the media platform operated. The web is very different from a comic book. A, a console video game is very different from an animated series. So understanding the distinctions between those, those production processes uh, allowed me to, uh, to develop worlds that operated well on all those different media. So why don't you just take a second and define transmedia storytelling? Uh, uh, transmedia storytelling is a kind of uh, technique. It's an art form. It's the process of, of taking a story or an intellectual property and developing it, developing it so that it operates on multiple media platforms in concert. So what we know of as transmedia storytelling today would include the Star Wars universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which operates both as movies and as television series and as streaming series, um, uh, the world of Harry Potter, Uh, These worlds are now huge franchises, and they operate as transmedia narratives. And Harry Potter is even on this Broadway stage now. That is the perfect example of a transmedia extension of Harry Potter. The Broadway play is not simply reiterating the story of the movie. It's a brand new story set in the same universe. In other words, it's advancing the story. That's correct. Right, and Crimes of Grindelwald. Uh, which is an extension of that world as well, and has been a huge uh, licensing uh, juggernaut as well. That's and Jeff right. Gomez, I just want to assert, sir, that the first uh, transmedia story was the Oz series, because there was books, and there were plays, and they were comic strips. You got me there. 
Um, ah, uh, ah. <laughs> and you're talking uh, about the Wizard of Oz, not the not the prison uh, <laughs> no, video. No, no, I am not. Well, you know that goes back a ways. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Superman uh, met Lois Lane and and had a relationship with her on the radio uh, series, not in the comic books. Um, uh, you know, the, these are uh, transmedia additions to canon. Now, Danny Simon's with us, and he's a friend of yours, a very good friend of yours. And so why don't you tell us your relationship with Danny, and, and then Danny can tell us a little bit about what he does. He may blush, but um, <laughs> I've been studying Danny Simon's work since I was uh, a kid, since I was in the 1980s. Oh, dear. In, in, in attempting to understand <laughs> what was wrong with licensing <laughs> and, and how to fix it. And there was Danny. No. <laughs> Danny just... Bigger uh, than life. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than life. <laughs> Danny actually wrote the book on licensing, and I studied uh, his work and and, um, uh, and and started to understand the nature of the business, so that the content that I created in the '80s and '90s um, uh, uh, could withstand the business uh, aspect as well as the creative aspect. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be directly introduced to Danny while on a project in China. And, uh, and we just fell in as if we'd known each other all our lives. And he goes, oh, you know, I have this uh, uh, intellectual property called Ultraman. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and I said, oh, do tell and uh, take it from there, Danny. But we're handling so. all of the licensing for Ultraman in North America market. And um, also doing some deals beyond the North American market. But let me go back for a second, because when you talk about transmedia storytelling, which I knew nothing about, nor did I understand it, um, I had the, the thrill of uh, licensing Mortal Kombat. And I had the most violent video game in the marketplace at the time. And now I'm trying to sell it as a license for toys and <laughs> things like that. Bad so, linens. Yeah. So... What I realized is that we needed media, and we needed some media that was less, quote, violent than what was being seen in the game to basically tame not the storyline, but the sense of what the storyline was. So I, uh, I thought that because it was a unique story, these characters had uh, personalities, they had backgrounds, there was an overarching ethos of, of sort of a quasi Eastern your Eastern Chinese uh, cultural element to it. There was a real potential for a movie, so I said this could be a movie because kids cared about these characters. So I went to the chairman of the company, Williams Valley Midway, and I said, "I want to make a movie out of this. What do you think?" And he says, "Go ahead, but just do not screw up my game." <laughs> <laughs> and didn't quite use those words; a little more colorful, right? Uh, <laughs> It's Hollywood. Yes. Um, so I went out there, but I realized what was the secret of success because two movies had been out there before us. Uh, the Mario Brothers and uh, sorry, um, a Street Fighter. Both failed. Yeah. Why did they fail? They made fun of the game. That's right. And I said, we have to do a movie of a game that kids love. They're playing, on average at that time, 54 hours uh, it was the lifespan of a game. In other words, mm -hmm. that's about how many hours in total a kid would play. Right. 
So if they're going to spend what is longer than a normal business week playing this game, you know, you can't make fun of it. So the whole premise was is that we have to actually create a story that people care about. And that's how we came up with what Mortal Kombat was. Big which, success. Smash hit movie. 150 million, but a once a generational tournament. Right. You know, I have been maintaining that the whole concept that we worked in silos, you know, that the toys didn't compete with anybody except toys, that you your competition was the company next to you on the shelf. And, and that's not the way it is now. And that my whole point is that the silos are gone and that anybody who sells play and entertainment Conceits, competes with anyone else who sells play and entertainment, and the fight is for time in a person's head. And it, it seems to me that Hasbro in the toy industry really led the way on that. And I just wonder if you guys agree with my outlook there, and uh, do you think Hasbro was a leader? Oh, without question. I mean, they were starting to control it. Well, there was a, even before Hasbro there, there was not to the same extent that Hasbro was able to do it, but Kenner uh, really, and Bernie Loomis has to take a lot of that credit originally. Bernie Loomis is sort of the, well, he's the man who licensed Star Wars for Kenner. Um, Good job, Bernie. Yeah. (laughs) I have a copy of the agreement. I can tell you what the deal is. But it was the only deal I ever saw was in perpetuity. But, um, but he understood what the potential was in taking toy beyond the level of toy play into creating more of an entertainment world. And he was very good. He found partners in the, in, in the greeting card companies initially. Uh, Hallmark and American Greetings, uh, and who were who were neighbors virtually. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 they created uh, worlds together, and it was very successful. What's interesting about that is that, um, and and not very well known, is how influenced uh, uh, George Lucas was by Japanese uh, pop culture and and Japanese uh, narrative uh, and and its entertainment, particularly for children. Uh, the, the Japanese took kids seriously. The, the stories in those animated shows and live action, Kid Vid from the uh, late 60s and early 70s, uh, was serious, uh, dark. There were some darker themes. And there was a serial quality uh, to those narratives that entered into Star Wars and allowed for... You don't mean breakfast for, cereal, do you? No, no, I mean sequential <laughs> cereal. S-E-R-I-A-L. Writing you out there who... As in killer. That's how Star Wars is a universe of characters... And also um, how then uh, Hasbro, which tapped into the, the Japanese pop culture thing with Transformers and uh, Micronauts and, and, and things like that, how that all became um, uh, something that uh, were story worlds that weren't too cartoony, that were more serious-minded and epic, had this epic quality with many, many different uh, um, uh, shapes and forms and, uh, and iterations. And, and one of the things I always think is so, so famous, and correct me if this is wrong, but, but Bernie Loomis was really a trailblazer because Kenner saw the opportunity, and a lot of people had passed on Star Wars, that they hadn't, they hadn't wanted to get, they didn't understand what a space western was going to be or could be. No. 
I work for the gentleman who licensed Star Wars, Mark Pevers at 20th Century Fox. And there were people, he told me, one guy in particular who mounted on the clipboard or the board in the lunchroom of the co- this big toy company, I vote no on Star Wars. And apparently he voted no for a, uh, a raise and ultimately the end of a career. <laughs> <laughs> now, there were a number of people who sure. absolutely passed. As we're talking about that, I, my mind keeps going back to history. And I, I think of Homer with the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you mentioned epics, and how that was kind of transmedia in the sense that it but was... But they weren't trademarked then. That's the problem. You <laughs> didn't, didn't get trademarks. Uh, that, he, that they say that they sang that those songs were sung, those stories were sung, and they were accompanied by instruments, and there would be, and, and even drums, you know, for battle and stuff. So sure. in a way that that was, and I'm thinking of Dickens who did that tour where he would read. That's right. From, so there are some elements earlier, but it's really, don't you think that our current times, it allows the technology being in place to expand the number of platforms? Absolutely. Um, and um, and the key, which we recognized fairly early at Starlight Runner, was that repetition was going to ultimately be a, a, a bad move. That that uh, that one of the qualities that you see in in epic storytelling is that uh, uh, it is long form storytelling. This is a, a narrative that has to go on and on and on, and, and can't uh, repeat itself too much. Uh, it's one of the things I think that Kevin Feige is doing well with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, he has ended uh, an arc that's lasted eight or ten years, and now he's going to start almost from scratch with a whole new set of characters that take threads uh, from that universe and will uh, ultimately iterate themselves into new product and new. Uh, but, new but gentlemen, isn't form. there some risk in that? Wasn't there some people were upset? Uh, was it with Star Wars that they introduced some new characters, or that that not everybody, not a true true fans are not always happy. This is the thing that Danny and I are working on so closely with Subaraya on Ultraman. What is the essence? What is the the magic uh, about Ultraman that has kept fans coming back generation after generation? We're in, we're entering into the fourth generation of the Ultraman franchise. But yet our licensing program now here in the U.S. and probably around the world will be concentrated back on the original. So we go back to the beginning and then we will move the story forward again. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Ultraman story and a little bit of the, the backstory on who Ultraman is? Because a lot of people may not know. Across the universe, there are um, uh, 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 giant creatures called kaiju. They are monsters who are attracted or upset uh, by, by the negative things in, in the universe. Pollution, uh, war, um, uh, the, the kinds of things that could upset environments. Um, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, M78 nebula, there is this race of beings who live in the land of light. They are towering uh, uh, 30 or 40 meter tall beings called the Ultras. The Ultras move across the universe uh, defending and protecting uh, innocents from the menacing kaiju. But more than that, they're there to kind of show us all how to live 
in better ways and be more noble as races across the universe so that we're not upsetting and, and, uh, and, and harming these kaiju. Um, so in, in Ultraman, the original uh, uh, series, um, uh, one of these beings has come to Earth to uh, uh, engage with these monsters, but uh, there's an accident. He collides with the, uh, 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 a jet space fighter, a, 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 one of the members of the Space Force, and, um, and that person almost dies, and Ultraman merges, the Ultra merges with the man and becomes Ultraman. Um, and he's this towering silver and red being uh, who battles kaiju. And his unique factor is, is that he could only raise to that 50-meter height for three minutes. And he has this timer on his chest that when it glows a certain color, that it means he has so many seconds or time left before he has dissipated the energy. <laughs> so, so what are the platforms, the media platforms, for Ultraman? Well, Ultraman has been a television show for the last 50 years. Uh, it was here in the United States from 1966 to 1981. There was a problem. There was a lawsuit that uh, flared up over copyrights that then lasted 35 years and took... Subaraya, the owners of the property, out of the marketplace, out of almost all the markets except Japan and a few Southeast Asian markets. So they continued quite successfully because today it's still a $50 million a year property. In Japan. In Japan. Um, but we haven't, it's new back to us having not been here since 81. So we have a 50 year old property that's almost brand new to the American market, but we have the value of these great characters and storylines having been out there. And now we are coming back, and the proof of it that it works is Netflix did, or is doing, a series in an anime format, and it's now the number one anime. Anime it, Ultraman. It's, it's a, a slightly different story. It's a near-future world where... Uh, Shin Hayata, who is the original Ultraman, who the human that collides with Ultraman and forms Ultraman, his son now is becoming the, the next iteration. So that's the, the storyline for the anime. So that's for more uh, young adults. It's uh, a hard action and, um, and CG animation, and it looks uh, fantastic. And it is the number one show on Netflix uh, that that has uh, for in, in animation and and that has opened the door uh, for more uh, Ultraman in various media, uh, and we'll be bringing the classic uh, version of the character. And back. we are uh, we announced in Tokyo, and and we will be uh, they're announcing it at the C two E two that uh, Marvel will be doing a line of comics. Oh wow. And, and where does it interact with children and with toys, or is it really a fandom-based uh, license that you're mm. considering, or uh, collector action figures? Is there a play component in this? No play component because the storyline is just terribly... Up Be fired. nice. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. There, no. There's very much a play component. There's two levels to this. There's a very much a collector market, which we respect, and we know that if we don't satisfy the collector market first... 
by creating product of that ilk that we will not be able to grow this to a younger market. There are thousands of Ultraman fans in the United States who very fondly remember uh, the it character. It was after school uh, uh, during uh, this period when. of time from I, 66. Uh, yeah, I remember it. Uh, it was on UHF. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody you're talking to knows what UHF is. UHF. <laughs> Google it. It has the round antenna. Right, exactly. <laughs> Channel 48. Yeah, right. <laughs> Google it. Yeah. Um, so those, those, uh, those fans um, uh, uh, comprise this base that when we put up UltramanGalaxy.com this past Saturday, it's just been a few days, um, a, a rush of tens of thousands of hits came into the site from that core fan base. So how important is it to uh, exist in these different platforms to attract and retain an audience? I mean, not just for Ultraman, but, but for any property. It's really competitive out there in terms of property and content. You can't be all things to all people. And you can't try to make your property into something it's not and please everybody. When I ever hear somebody tell me they have a license that works for everybody, <laughs> that is absolutely impossible. We are probably not for an age range below, say, four years old. That's not the market we're trying to play in. We know that our core market is certainly adult, and we will go down. But obviously, if we get a toy line, it goes into that four to six, a six to eight age range, or four to eight age range. Uh, but it's going to be based on the same material. It's just going to be created in a different process uh, and at obviously a lower price point. Uh, but it'll be because we have enough media that will support it. Key, really, guys, is is um, is to understand the fundamental message of the intellectual property. When you're building something, it, it, and you want uh, uh, millions of people to enjoy it, there's got to be something in it worth learning from. Worth, uh, you know, we call it aspiration. Right. Um, uh, and um, and uh, a part of our job initially. Danny's and mine was to dive into Ultraman and speak with the creators of the show, speak with the producers, the CEO of, of Subaraya, and um, and understand what that brand essence is, what that core messaging is. In the case of Ultraman, courage, hope, and kindness uh, was was a fascinating nugget to start with and build the the narrative on top of. Knowing that helps you distinguish your, your, your brand so that it is not Power Rangers, so that it is not Pacific Rim. It is Ultraman. How in the current environment where there are so many properties out there? I was recently at Kid Screen, and oh my gosh, yeah. there are so many properties. So many of them are vying to get attention, and many of them haven't got what Ultraman has. But mm. if somebody's listening to this and they have... A property. What advice would you give them if they're trying to get if they're trying to get placed or they're trying to develop it in the current environment? Use you you know using your expertise. Uh, well, we love the uh, approach of the uh, creation of a story world. Whether or not you're you're doing uh, a film and television, uh, it's just vital uh, for you to be able to understand 
who your characters are exactly and where they fit into the universe. What, what, what are um, the parameters of the world in which they live? A lot of the stuff that I see out there, quite uh, candidly, is not that uh, well thought out. So I agree. Um, you have these uh, bizarre kind of mishmashes of magic and science fiction. Uh, you, you have um, uh, people who are drawing from uh, uh, whatever it is most popular that's out there. And, and what you get is a Xerox of a Xerox of a, a copy of a copy of a copy. And that's not, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, even kids can kind of smell that and not be as interested. I had something pitched to me that they said, it's Paw Patrol, but with cats. <laughs> there you go. We've seen a lot of that. Okay. The worst thing you can do is to try to go out with a property before you have taken the time to get it rooted in the marketplace. The essence of licensing... Or the reason licensing works is is because consumers know the property and there's some kind of an affinity for the property. That's the value you're selling when you go to a manufacturer and sell them the license. They are taking it on because they have reasonable belief that the consumer, that there is already consumer for that product based on the kind of media that supports the property. And if you try to go out to the marketplace early, uh, before you've built up that fan base, what happens? You create a product that sits on the shelf. Nobody knows what it is. It doesn't get sold, and it winds up markdown bins, and now it's poisoned at retail. I agree. And, and, and now you are in a negative position because even if you wind up getting media... To support it, you've now got to build back from a negative. I'm going to ask you guys a, a question. I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking about the very many different platforms. And I'm thinking, you know, radio. Uh, this is what before, we're doing right now, radio. Yeah, back, back, back before television, radio was storytelling. A lot of radio shows. Why has um, Star Wars or whatever, why have they not offered a radio show it's, as, a, as a form of storytelling as an additional platform. I got my Guys, here's the news. The um, uh, audio is is coming back in a very, very strong way. And that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. So, but before now, there's not been a platform to play it. That, that's correct. Um, uh, well, I mean, it, 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 radio was, was kind of on a downswing. Uh, the, uh, podcasting and, uh, and audio books are, are on an upswing. And the, the beauty of that is that you are seeing intellectual properties being born on the audio, in the audio format that are being optioned by Hollywood. But radio was a commercially driven format, and nobody was willing to commercially support something that was as mundane as a story, because radio had become the music platform. Correct. And we had lost talk radio, quotes talk radio. Right, right. Except on the political spectrum. And if it was a story, there was no place for it. But now, um, uh, you see Procter & Gamble, you, you see all these major uh, 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 corporations headed back to audio as sponsors. Some of them are generating their own content in-house for podcasting and so forth. Some of them are sponsoring... Uh, a narrative content 
So I, um, I would bet you that Lucasfilm or Disney is, is re-examining the audio format. Uh, certainly Amazon has gone full guns uh, uh, doing things that, that are now costing upwards of, of 500000 or a million dollars for uh, uh, audio drama. And, um, uh, and, and you, you'll have more and more uh, uh, big companies uh, uh, heading in this direction. It, it is also starting to juvenileize, so you have more and more kids uh, plugging in and listening to stories. Listening to radio wasn't hip. Right, right. Well, it gives me hope that we'll have the Playground Podcast movie. <laughs> Podcast the Playground. <laughs> right, exactly. Chris, this is a, just a fascinating conversation. I want to really thank you guys, uh, both of you. Um, uh, Jeff, if people want to reach you or learn more about you, how do they go about doing Absolutely. that? Um, uh, I am Jeff Gomez, Starlight Runner Entertainment. I am an easy Google. Um, uh, but, Not uh, a nice Google, but an easy Google. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever met an easy Google before. <laughs> Connect with me through LinkedIn or uh, uh, Twitter at Jeff underscore Gomez. Uh, guys, you do a, a fantastic service for the, the toy industry. I really appreciate Thank what you, you what Thank you done. very much. Danny? Uh, if I can just make one quick pitch for the book I have out with my co-writer, uh, Greg Battersby. It's The Business of Licensing. It's uh, available on Amazon. Um, actually, we are the most popular book on the subject of copyright at the moment. Well, you and, you and Greg are both icons in this business. So yes, yes, we are. So buy this yes. book. It's going to be awesome. But it, it's an excellent book because it really does cover the whole gamut of licensing. I've learned it all from there. And how can people reach you if they want to? Or do you want people to reach you? <laughs> oh, sure. Danny Simon. DannyTLGLA.com. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We really appreciate the, the chance to talk with you. Thank you, guys. Fantastic, guys. Great. We thank appreciate you. it. Pretty amazing stuff, don't you think? Yeah, I hope everybody really enjoyed that as much as we did with, with Danny and Jeff. Uh, maybe we'll have them on again sometime. I'd love to, I'd love to hear about how Ultraman takes off. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically, as he does literally, uh, this is the Playground Podcast. Thanks for listening, and come back next time.